Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au If you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. I think if, if, if I was to get up here, or if one of you was to get up here and say, I know exactly where we will be this time next year, you would laugh, right? Based on what we've experienced the last two years, you'd, you'd probably laugh. I, I, I wouldn't believe them. I think they were a bit crazy and uh, would need some deliverance uh, in prayer afterwards. Um, I was listening to a podcast just, just this week, and the guy's listening to someone who I really respect as uh, a, a very good sort of sociologist mixed with the gift of prophecy, right? So a, re- a really good combo, sort of like a man of Isaacah. If you read the Old Testament, you see these guys who, who David had in his entourage, these men of Isaacah, 200 men who knew the times and knew what Israel should do. And he wasn't, he wasn't, this guy wasn't proclaiming to say, I know exactly where we'll be in 2023 because I would have hit, hit stop at that point. But what he was talking about with the interviewer was, he asked him, how would you describe the season? And the word he used was a great word, such an obvious word, but a great word. The word he used was disruptive, <laughs> right? Disruptive. The thing about this, though, I think that accurately describes how we've all been feeling lately, but the thing about the season that he was describing was not so much the current season as what he saw the future to be. <laughs> so not just, not just net, but, but like the new frontier, the new future for humanity was disruption, and he was, he was comparing it to what we have grown accustomed to, predictability, comfort, things don't change much. We live that for decades. And now we're probably in a season that humanity has known mostly through their existence. We've actually enjoyed a pretty abnormal time prior to this. We're actually into now a season, probably a season is a word that's too short to describe this, of Disruption. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't like to be disrupted. Brooke came home from uh, work yesterday having done a shift. And, and if, you, if you know someone who works in hospitals at the moment, it's hardcore, right? And even as a midwife, the stuff that, that Brooke comes home and shares is just next level disruptive chaos, right? And, but we're trying to have this conversation about what she'd experienced. And our four kids who are, who are here this morning, I love you guys. They kept disrupting us, <laughs> We're trying to have this conversation. Brooke's trying to tell me the story and, and they're just continually disrupted. And, and I realized, I re- had this revelation as a parent about 10 years ago, the times that I get most frustrated at these kids that I love <laughs> is when they disrupt me. <laughs> like if, if, I'm, if I'm with them and I'm focused on them and they ask me questions, no problem. But if I'm doing something else and they come in and disrupt, that's what triggers. Yeah, there's a few nodding heads around. Dis, dis, we don't like disruption. Now that, that's... There's a bit of sin in there for me. I'm not going to take, to take this down the pathway of confession as a parent. I need to be more patient. But the point is, we don't like to be disrupted. I, I think on, on a more serious note of my most painful time in church leadership was a disruptive time. It was a time when we were going in a certain direction. We were on a journey to go somewhere that we were all pretty excited about. And then this massive blow up happened that completely disrupted it. And the pain was incredible. The pain at times was intolerable. It was a horrible time because we were disrupted. Disruption causes pain. Here's here's two things about God when it comes to disruption. The first thing is God can never be disrupted. He never loses it if, if you think you're disrupting him. He can't be disrupted. He knows all. He can't be disrupted. But here's the second thing about him. 
He reserves the right to disrupt your life. He reserves the right to disrupt your life. Can't you look back on times of disruption and see the goodness of God? Can't you look back on times when you were disrupted, whether it's small little thing like for me with my kids, realizing, okay, God, help me to grow in patience, help me to grow in love and, and lavish love on my children like you do, help me, to, help me to be that as a parent. Isn't it a time of learning and a time of growth as I look back on that painful leadership time and can see his fingerprints all over, or to put it more specifically, the way that he took that, that disruptive and painful time and turned it to make it good for so many. He reserves the right to disrupt your life. I think that the wilderness for the Israelites, the 70 years that they spent, the 40 years, help me, was it 40 or 70? 40, thank you, thank you. It's usually 40 or 70 or 12 or something. For the 40 years of the wilderness, that was a time of disruption. The Israelites had set out on a journey. They were going from A to B. They were going from Egypt to the promised land. That was the journey and they the, the, the wilderness wasn't about that journey. The wilderness was a time of disruption. God disrupted them because they had forgotten how good he was. They'd forgotten about him. And so God reserved the right to disrupt them. He disrupted them. He caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But this time of disruption, it wasn't about the geographical journey anymore to get from A to B. It was a journey of depth for the Israelites a journey of depth for their hearts to understand once again how good God is and how much he loves them. And could it be for us that this season of disruption, a disruption of even for Gateway as we did all the planning for 2028 and all that sort of stuff and as we look at the year ahead and having to delay all these things and, and looking around and not seeing everyone in the room and all this disruption, could it be for our, for our campus and for our church and for, for brothers and sisters of, uh, in Christ all over the place that this season of disruption, God is disrupting our plans. We were heading somewhere. He's disrupting our plans because he wants to take us not on a journey of direction, not on a journey of geography or, or from getting to A to B, but he wants to take us deep. He wants to create in us a deeper sense of dependency on him. He wants to create in us a deeper sense of intimacy with him. And what's true for us corporately, I wonder if that's true for you individually. Because you're all experiencing this disruption in different ways, apart from the normal disruptions of life, stuff that's happening. It has nothing to do with COVID. But they're massive disruptions. Could it be that God wants to take you on a journey of heart rather than a journey of forward movement? You see, I, th I think when, when God disrupts us, a big part of the reason why he does that is because we have forgotten. We have forgotten the things that we should never forget. God disrupts us because when, when we're in, when we're, sometimes we get into a zone for ourselves, we're so focused on the things around us, we're so focused on the things we can't, that we can control or stressed out that we can no longer control them that we start to get in a bit of a tears, we start to get a bit crazy, we start to, to, to worry and stress about a whole range of things. I mean, who, who's that true for right now? I want you to put your hand up because you might be a bit embarrassed, but I'll admit it, <laughs> that that's true for me. And, and what this disruption can do is it can cause us to forget the things that we should never forget. And this journey of depth that God wants to take us on, the reason he's disrupting us is because we've forgotten those things, those things that are so fundamental to our faith, our hearts, and our minds have wandered into places that God doesn't want us 
to wander into. Something else has become the focus of our passion, of our energy, other than him and his kingdom. Maybe this is a season, and, and I go back to my prayer before when we were, were praying earlier in the service, to, that we'd be attentive to the opportunities that God is putting before us right now, despite the circumstances. What, what, what is he up to right now that we will never have the opportunity to experience again? Maybe this is a season of grace-filled, loving interruption and disruption to remind us to forget not. So Psalm 103, if you've got your, uh, your, your paper Bibles or your digital Bibles there, open up to Psalm 103, 103. The words are going to be up on the screen for those who didn't bring their scriptures and we will read it together in a sec. But before we do, there's two things I want to say before we start reading this together. The first thing is to recognize straight off the bat who this psalm is written to. So you'd straight away think, well, psalms are written to God. They're songs of worship. They're songs of praise or they're songs of lament or, or whatever. And they're, they're directed to God. Well, this psalm isn't directed to God. David is writing to himself. David is writing to himself. It's like the mind is speaking to the soul to say, forget not. So, you know, I, I Googled, what do you call someone who talks to themselves? And all the research says it's pretty normal now, which made me go phew. Um, but, but, you know, it, there was a day when if you had conversations with yourself, you, you might be thrown into uh, some sort of institution. Uh, it's so reassuring that someone like David, someone who loved God so much, talks to himself. <laughs> the rest of us can go, yes, I do too. But that's what this psalm is. He's not writing necessarily directly to God. He's writing it to himself. The second thing I want to introduce to this psalm that I dare introduce to this psalm is something that, are in, that is in other psalms that's not in this one, but it's a Selah moment. S-E-L-A-H. Have you ever seen that in the psalms in between paragraphs, Selah? What I like to think that means, and, and there's, a bit, there's a little bit of disagreement, but generally speaking, the general consensus is this means pause and meditate on what you've just read. Take a moment to think about the truth of what you've just declared or what you've read or what you've heard. And so I want to introduce into this psalm some Selah moments, and that'll make sense as I, un, as I unpack it as, as much as I can uh, this morning. But we're going to look at, in particular, the first five verses, and after the five benefits that David lists, we're going to take a Selah moment to believe these are going to be times when the Holy Spirit wants to do some work in us. Anyway, let's, let's read it together. I'll read it. and you, Actually, actually, is there some bold person who would stand right now and read the psalm to us? Stick your hand up. If it doesn't happen in the next three seconds. Yes, Belle, come on. I saw that hand. <laughs> that was, she kind of went, oh. It's like the hand was talking to the, yeah, there we go. Come on, let's give Belle a big clap. Come on up, Belle. I'll read it from yours, sure. Thank you. Praise the Lord, my soul, or my innermost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, 
his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Thank you, Belle. What a beautiful psalm, hey? Like I said, I really do want to focus on verses 1 to 5. It's, it's, a, it's a big, chunky psalm. There's so much in it. But I do want to focus particularly on verses 1 to 5, where David says, forget not his benefits. And again, just paint the picture here. It's like David is in this moment. And, and, and the, the, the background or the time of, in his life at which David wrote this, not, not many people can, they don't, they don't know. They don't know what season of life he was in when he wrote this. But you, you get the picture that he's in, he's in this moment, possibly like we are now where our minds know stuff about God. Our minds are clear. Yep, God, Jesus on the cross, he, he died for my sin, he rose again. There's all this stuff that we know, but we need to tell, we need to shout it to our soul. We need to shout it to our hearts because we know that fear lies there. We know that worry lies there. We know that stress and anxiety lie there. And it's like this conversation with ourselves and, and David, as he does, invites us in to this conversation with ourselves to say, forget not, forget not his benefits. And I love how the psalm finishes. Praise the Lord, everything and everybody. Now, there, is, there is fruit here when we talk to ourselves. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a sailor after each benefit. The first benefit, he forgives. He forgives. Just have to scroll back and forth as I look at these. Who forgives all of our sins. You know, I think there's this, there's this truth of spiritual growth that, I'm, that I experience as I get older. I mean, Jesus has ha- had me that I've been aware of since I was 19. So that's now 23 years ago. And I found a, a key part of my spiritual growth, it, it's kind of, it's kind of um, a little bit counterintuitive. But my spiritual growth happens as the holiness of God grows in my estimation alongside my understanding of how sinful I am. Let me say that again. My, I grow spiritually when my estimation understanding of how holy and perfect and righteous God is, while at the same time growing in my understanding of how sinful I am. How, how does that work? Well, I think it's this, it's this Isaiah thing. When Isaiah stands in the presence of God and says, woe is me, 
Isaiah has this vision where he's before the throne of God and one of the first things that hits his mind is how much he does not deserve to be in front of a holy God. And he cries out, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. It's a very, uh, I think that's a very sanitized version of all the stuff that was probably going through his mind. That's probably not the words I'd choose to use. But, but that there's this full-on realization of how sinful I am, but how holy God is. This isn't a game. This is, this is serious stuff. And I grow when I understand, God, you are so other than me. You are so much better than me. You're so much holier than me. And yet you love me. And as I grow and, and the layers of my sin are exposed and, and the, 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 the way that I think and the way that I look at people and the way all that, sort of, and, and, and just, just this last week without going into detail, another level was exposed to me. It's like, my goodness, I'm, I'm just stuffed up again. You're so holy and I'm so not. And yet your love and your grace are enough. We grow as we understand more and more the full-on nature of God's forgiveness of our sin. Isaiah has this moment afterwards when, he, when, he, when he's cleansed. You know, the, the, the coal comes out of the fire and it goes up to his lips and he's cleansed and he's made whole. And the response is this joyful when God says, who shall I send? He says, here I am, send me. As someone who understands forgiveness, as someone who says, I'm not just going to take the coal off my lips and, and go, right, I'm going to go back to these people and keep living it up. This is someone who's been so transformed that if there's something that God wants me to do, I'm totally in because my joy is immeasurable. That's what we, when we understand forgiveness, a holy, perfect God would forgive someone like me. Yes, forget not that benefit. Forget not that benefit. I wonder if you need to remember forgiveness today, that God does not deal with you as your sins deserve. David writes elsewhere in this psalm. God does not deal with you as your sins deserve. He does not deal with you as you deserve to be dealt with. Such is your offense to God, but he doesn't deal with you in a way that should happen. By grace, he forgives you. How forgiven are we? Well, our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Do a thought experiment with me. I want you to imagine you're packing a bag and on foot, you start walking east. Start walking east. Walk as far east as you can. And when you get as far as you can go, look back and tell me how far the west is from your position. Okay, so when, you, when you've noted how far it is and you pinpoint it there, start heading west and walk as far west as you can go, maybe to that point, maybe beyond it. And then tell me then how far the west is from you. Do you get the picture? That's how far our sins have been removed from us, such as the extent of the forgiveness as far as the east is from the west. Because you are forgiven to this extent, because your sin has been removed from you as far as the east is from the west, you know what? You are so free to therefore confess your sin because it's not held against you. You're not being dealt with as you deserve. So there is freedom to confess. Yeah, I did that. I did that. If you don't understand forgiveness, maybe you hold your sins close and you don't want other people to know because you're not sure how you're going to be dealt with. Well, the one who is most important when it comes to your sin is God. And he's saying here, as far as the east is from the west, I'm removing that sin from you. So we are free to confess. We're also free, like Isaiah, to seek righteousness because we understand the love of God that he would do that for us. We are free then to say, 
if this sin is not held against me, I don't want to hold it anymore. I want to change. I want to experience transformation. Just reckon there might be some. And this is not going to be a public thing just for, for reasons that I've just said. I just wonder if we need to take a Selah moment for confession. I reckon there might be some here this morning who there's a sin in your heart that you're ashamed of. There's a sin habit or there's something that you continually turn back to that you would not want anyone to know about because you fear what they might think of you if they were to know. I want to tell you this morning that, that God looks at that sin and his desire is to remove it from you as far as the east is from the west. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to get you to raise your hand. I'm, I'm going to get you to close your eyes though. Just, let's just close our eyes and have this sailor moment. We are free to confess our sin to God. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just. Remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west and he will cleanse us. Just take a moment in silence to confess your sin to God. feel like if we were to stop there that would be benefit enough <laughs> that the thing that would separate us from God he's removed he's, he's forgiven us of our sin would that be enough benefit to praise God to want to make you praise God well there's more but wait there's more the second benefit is that he heals he heals David writes he heals you from your diseases now, when we talk about healing, there's two aspects to it that I think we sort of, this is a reminder to you, if you've been in church a while, you've probably heard this idea before, but there's, there's spiritual healing and there's physical healing. The thing is, with this particular psalm, most scholars agree that David is talking here about physical healing. David's talking about physical healing. And when it comes to the question of physical healing, I think there are two questions that we kind of ask ourselves almost sometimes subconsciously. The first question is, can he heal? And the second question is, will he heal? Or does he heal? Can he heal? First question, will he heal? Second question, I want to tell you the answer to those questions. The answer to the first question is, yes. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. I'm not channeling Barack Obama there. Yes, he can. Someone thought that was funny. <laughs> but the answer to the second question is, and you know this, sometimes. Sometimes. Yes, he can heal. Will he? Sometimes. Here's the thing, though. And, and this is me preaching to myself. We can't let the answer to the second question cast doubt in our minds about the answer to the first question. We can't let that happen. Because we can't, we can't go, he, he didn't this time, therefore he can't. No, that, that's a bad conclusion to come to. He can't. And we know that he can because what's awaiting us, what's awaiting us in the future is complete physical healing. Complete physical healing. 
for everybody who puts their trust in Jesus because of our spiritual healing. Remember, I had this, had this really close friend. She's still a close friend, but she lives in Perth right now. And who, who, who doesn't like everyone who lives in Perth right now, by the way? WA. That's a joke as well. But anyway, we just ditch the jokes. Um, maybe I should just do that generally every time I have a microphone in front of me. But anyway, this friend, her name's Anna, and I grew up with her at Birkdale Baptist. She was like a little sister to me. She was born with a condition where it was a surprise that she made it. She had no ears, completely stone cold deaf, like half a heart. I can't remember the name of the condition, but it was serious, right? To the degree that when she turned 18, the doctors didn't know what to do with her because they never experienced someone becoming an adult with this condition because they usually die, right? When she got pregnant, everyone was really scared because no one with this condition can have a baby. When she gave birth to her son, <laughs> it was really worried about how she was going to look after this boy. Now she's, she's what, she's about 30 now, living in Perth with her husband, little boy Sebastian. She still struggles with this condition. Do you know how many times she has been prayed for, for healing? Do you know how many times she herself has prayed for healing? She didn't want the ears, though. She didn't want big ears. She had no ears. She was happy with that. But she didn't want to be healed with, to have ears on it because she didn't want to look like a wingnut. But anyway, here's the thing about Anna, though. And I knew her well. And this is the conclusion that I've come to. Even though I believe God can, God didn't with her. But here's what I know. God has been far more glorified in her life through not healing her than if he had. That's the amazing thing. She's stone cold deaf. You can have a conversation with her because she can hear and she can speak. At Birkdale, she sung a song on her own, a solo, pitch perfect. She's stone cold deaf. How does, she, I've worn her hearing aid. You, like my mic was playing up before. You ain't heard nothing like the way that she hears. And yet she could sing this song. She's had a kid for goodness sake. So God can, in a moment God could heal her. I believe that with all my heart. But he hasn't. But I don't want to let the fact that he hasn't mess with my belief that he can. And it's the same for us. But... Right now, I know that you know and I know people who need healing. We know, we know people who need healing. And I think we need to take a sailor moment, and if you, if you yourself need healing, to pray for that. But for us to think about, again, the other people who, who are not here, for people who we know who are suffering right now through, through a variety of different things, for us to pray to the God who heals our diseases, let's take a sailor moment to pray for those people. Two benefits down and about 10,000 to go, but we're only going to look at another three. The third one from this psalm, he redeems your life from the pit. I think forgiveness and healing set the scene for redemption. It, forgiveness is not the same as redemption. 
This, I think sometimes for us, we, we, we only live in the world of forgiveness and healing. And, and we look at God as some kind of divine vending machine who dispenses grace and healing when we need it. So we come in, we know that we've got sin to insert in the, the coin slot. We insert our sin and he dispenses to us forgiveness. Like, sweet, forgiven. And then we go back and fill our purse with coins again through the week, doing things our way because we know... Well, if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just. So I'll just continually live in this life pattern of me doing what I want to do, but knowing that I can always come on Sunday and insert my sin and he'll dispense grace. And if I get sick and Derek's preaching, <laughs> I'll come and get healed. I, I told myself I was going to ditch the jokes. But anyway, that's not a joke. Derek is very gifted. We can live however we want, though. We, live in, we just live in this world of forgiveness and healing. You know, God wants to do more in us. God wants to redeem us. He wants to reset the trajectory of our lives. He knows that we've been living a certain way. He wants to live, lift us from that pit of habitual sin, lift us from the pit of doing things over and over again the way that we want to do it and set our, paths, set, set our feet on a path of truly living as humans, as we were meant to and designed to live the way our Creator intended. That's what God wants to do. He wants to give us a great life, abundant life. I actually reckon there are two pits that God wants to redeem us from. There's a pit of unrighteousness, and I think this is really obvious. It's the pit I just described, us doing things the way that we want to do them. And if we're really honest, we, we kind of like that pit because it's fun. We think it's fun. We're in control. It's predictable. We can come on Sunday and confess our sins. There's things about the pit that we really like and we may not want God to rescue, it, rescue us from it. The, the, the pit of unrighteousness is really, it's like the younger brother from the, from the parable who goes and spends his money on reckless living. That's like a pit that we can go, yeah, that's, that's obviously the pit. Some of you know that pit. There's another pit. It's a different pit. It's a separate pit. It's not the same pit. You can't see people from this pit who are in the other pit because this pit is a pit of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. The younger brother had an older brother who was in that pit. He didn't know he was in the pit. And everyone who looked at him didn't think he was in that pit because he was so good. He was so obedient. He did everything that the father wanted. But his dependence was on himself. It's really hard to be rescued from the pit of self-righteousness because you think you're on a different plane to everybody else. And everybody else sucks because you're so good and holy and righteous. Thank you, God, for not making me like them said the Pharisee when he was praying with the tax collector. Thank you for not making me a tax collector. He was in the pit of self-righteousness. Which one did God rescue? He rescued the tax collector who knew that he was in the pit of unrighteousness. The difference is just that. He knew it. He knew it. And just like the pit of unrighteousness, for, for those of us who find themselves often in the pit of self-righteousness, we like it there. Because, same reasons, it's predictable, it's comfortable. Our friends sometimes are in that pit with us, telling us how good we are and us telling them how. You know, the, the older brother says, you never had a party for me and my friends. Birds of a feather, self-righteous. Thank you that we are all this and they are all that. You're in a pit, you're in a pit and you need to be rescued from it. No pit is good for you. The pit of unrighteousness, the pit of self-righteousness. God wants to lift you out of that pit and into something far better. It's called being truly human. There's only one condition for being lifted out of the pit. One condition. 
and that is that you're humble. It takes a humble heart. It takes humility to ask and to raise your hand and say, God, rescue me from this pit that I found myself in. It requires an acknowledgement that you need it. And sometimes, and this is the sailor moment I think for us, is what David prayed in Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. This bit, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you're living in the pit of unrighteousness, if you're living in the pit of self-righteousness, that lifestyle is offensive to God. And David is praying here. It's obvious that he, he's not aware, but such is his humility, so much is his humble posture. He says, God, help me to see what I'm not seeing. Lift me out of the pit and lead me in the way everlasting. He can't see it for himself, but he's praying to God to help him see. And I think that's our Selah moment, to be redeemed from the pit, that the Spirit would help us to see, God, am I in the pit of unrighteousness? Am I living the way that I want to live, doing all the stuff that is offensive to you? Or am I in the pit of self-righteousness that may be a bit harder to see because I'm pretty proud of my religious accomplishments? Spirit, now examine our hearts. Let me just say the words of David again as we take this Selah moment. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Selah. Benefit number four, he crowns us with love and compassion. I mean, again, just let me reiterate, that would this be enough? He's forgiven our sins, he heals our diseases, he puts our life back on, back on the track that we were meant to be on, he makes that possible. Now there's more, he crowns us with love and compassion. I think this is the son coming home from reckless living to encounter reckless love from his father. What, what's happening there is the father is crowning his son and the younger brother is shocked. All he's expecting or hoping is that he'll be made like one of the workers for his father's farm. But no, the father won't have any of it. He crowns him again. He puts a ring on his finger, which means he can speak for the family. He can sign documents. He's a fully fledged member of the family. Again, put a robe on his back, kill the fattened calf. There's a party. There's a celebration here because my son is home. It's as if... The son had already walked the road of redemption and completed it. Lived the redeemed life the way we think. It's almost as if, or it is as if, it is as if the, the younger son had done enough in his father's eyes so that the father could trust him again. Do you get that? I don't, I don't think we would operate like this. I think if we'd been hurt that many times, if our faces had been spat in that many times, we'd want to see some pretty concrete evidence from someone before we welcomed them back and crowned them again. Don't you think? That's, that just feels natural. That's not how God operates with us. He crowns us. It's as if, even though he's redeemed us and set us back on the path, we know that we're going to wander into those pits again. 
But the way that God looks at us is as if we have walked that redemptive, that redemptive path and passed with flying colors, 100%. That's the way he looks at us. He crowns us with love and compassion as if we are perfect, as if we are flawless, as if we are sinless. That's how David is saying he looks at us. This is, the, this is his benefit. This is a new identity as fully-fledged sons and daughters of God. That's how the Father looks at you and sees you. And it's really hard for some of you to hear this because you live with this feeling of unworthiness. You live with this feeling of, yeah, not me though. You don't know. You don't know, Sam. Yeah, I I don't. You, You know who does though? God. But he crowns you with love and compassion. Maybe the sin that entangles you, maybe the pit that you find yourself in, it, 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 what, what, not maybe, what these things do is they speak lies into your ears and they speak lies into your heart and into your soul and, and they say, you are not worthy of God's love. Look at you. You are not worthy. I want to hear this this morning. You are worthy. You are worth it. You are worth it to the degree that God crowns you with love and compassion. Paul writes about this. He'll write this hundreds of years later. This movement from forgiveness and redemption to crowning, he writes about it in Ephesians. And this is who you are. This is who you are. Remember, don't forget it. Let me read this before we take a moment of sailor. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. In other words, you did nothing. You did nothing apart from be loved by God. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You hear that? God looks at you as if he looks at Jesus. That's who you are to him. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us, prepared in advance for us to do. This is who you are. Do you hear this? There's nothing good you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing bad you can do to make God love you less. And he loves you to the degree that he crowns you as if you are Jesus. That's who you are. Let's sailor on that for a moment. The last benefit, we're almost at the end. Not the last benefit, the last benefit mentioned in this psalm, like I said, there are 10,000 more. The last one, he satisfies our desires with good things. We know, and this is part of the pit as well, we turn to so many other things to satisfy our desires. We turn to so many things that we think will satisfy us or numb us to the pain, things that we think will bring some kind of satisfaction or some kind of uh, good feeling, we turn to those things rather than turning to God. 
David here reminds us that he reminds his soul, sorry, he's reminding himself that God is the only one who can satisfy our desires with good things. He's the only one, the only one. You know, as we've worked through this psalm, notice that David's talking here about God's benefits. He's not talking about his characteristics, although they overlap. He's talking about his benefits, the things that God does. But I'm certain here that when David writes, he satisfies our desires with good things. I'm certain that the one good thing that was dominating David's mind is the one good thing of God's very presence. God's very presence. In Exodus 33, Moses is having this chat with God. And if you read the prayers of Moses with God, they're quite incredible at how familiar they are. But in Exodus 33, God God says to Moses, look, I'm so sick of these people. I'm so sick of these people. I'm going to do, I'm going to make sure what I said would happen will happen. You're going to go up into the land and I'm going to send an angel and they're going to clear the way and you're going to settle in the land and you'll have prosperity and all the good things I said. But you know what, Moses, I'm not going to go with you. And just just think about that for a moment. That's a lot of good things that could satisfy God's people. Victory in battle, prosperity and fruitfulness, all this stuff. God's promising to do that, but he says to Moses, but I myself will not be present with you. Moses responds by saying, if you will not go with us, we are not going. One of the smartest things Moses ever said, because he knew the best of the good things was God's very presence. The thing that would satisfy the most, the thing that would make God's people most distinct was the fact that God himself would dwell with them. God himself, first and foremost and most primarily, yes, he does give us good things, but the best thing, and even if all the good things dry up, the best thing is his very presence with us. And the question that we need to ask ourselves today, are we like Moses? Are we satisfied with his presence today? Even if we get nothing else, is his very presence enough? Selah on that. Let me finish by pointing out a problem with this psalm. There's, there's an inconsistency in this psalm that you may not pick up straight away. And funnily enough, it comes from the scene that we've just remembered of Moses having this conversation with God. Because you see, when Moses says to God, if you will not go with us, we're not going. Moses then boldly, but probably with a little bit of timidity, asks God, can I see your glory? And God says, no, you can't, because if you did, you'd probably die on the spot. But here's what we'll do. I'll pass by and you'll be able to see the back of me. And there's this declaration at that moment when, when the presence of God is going past Moses. And I, it's hard to see who actually says this, but let's say Moses said it. Moses uses words to describe that experience 
that David uses in the psalm that we've just read. Moses says this, as he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming. So this is where, is Moses proclaiming or is someone else? But here it is. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. But here it is, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It's really different to what David says in this psalm. Moses here declares the punishment upon the guilty. And haven't we all realized this morning that that's us? We're guilty. There's punishment for the guilty. David then writes, many years later, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. There it is. It's the same thing. And he and before this, he says, the Lord revealed himself to Moses. So he's quoting Moses here, but he changes it up quite significantly. He says, he will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do you see how different it is? Moses is talking about punishment for the guilty. David is talking about forgiveness for the guilty. That's two completely different outcomes, two completely different things. How can God both punish the guilty and forgive them? You can't do both, logically speaking. How does that happen? That's a significant problem for God to address so that both of these things from two men of God can be true that both Moses and David can be right. And that's exactly what God does. He's setting us up for something far greater than what David hoped for in this psalm. What David knew as, as a hope, we know as a certainty because of Jesus. Because God Himself took on flesh became a human like us and lived a perfect life. Jesus didn't need forgiveness. He didn't need healing. He didn't need redemption. He didn't need crowning because all of that was true for him. He lived a perfectly sinful life and yet died a horrible and gruesome death on a cross. And in this moment, God declares to us that in this moment, I have absorbed the punishment that Moses talked about. I was punished for your sin. On the cross, Jesus takes the weight of that offence and absorbs it for us on the cross. The punishment is dealt with, but that punishment has become our peace because in this punishment, in that absorption of punishment for all those who would believe in Jesus, there is this offer of forgiveness. More than that, there's this offer of healing. More than that, there's this offer of redemption. More than that, there's this offer of glory and satisfaction. This is the great exchange. His perfection for our sinfulness. These benefits are secured and certain for us. Like I said, David hoped for them. But we know for certain because we live this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Again, Paul writes about this in Ephesians. Let me read them to you. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. 
in love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Let us not forget His benefits. Church, let's just bow our heads and close our eyes and meditate on those benefits again. That in this season of disruption, nothing can take these benefits away. Nothing can mess with them. Nothing can impact. I just saying to the prayer team this morning, it's been, I think, 22 years since Graham Staines and his boys died in a car in India when it was set alight. That did not take his benefits away. None of the benefits were lost in that moment. It's true for him, it's true for us. His benefits are unshakable, they're unflappable, even in a season and a future season of disruption. I love the other thing about this psalm that I'll finish with now is this journey from self-talk to invitation. That David moves from talking to his soul, but then he moves, he finishes with inviting people to know the God who forgives, the God who heals, the God who redeems, the God who gives us glory, the God who satisfies our desires with good things. He remembers them for himself and then he recounts them for others to hear. And then he invites from others this praise of this God who offers us these things. Remember and recount. And this is the sort of people that we should be. This season of disruption where God might be taking our hearts on this journey of depth, it's not just a season for our benefit. It's not just a season where we can bunker down and sit in a holy huddle until Jesus comes back. And Jesus, please come back soon. No, the natural progression of this forget not is from self-talk to invitation. And church, this is who we need to be in this moment, in this season of disruption. We need to be people of invitation. The people that we live, work and laugh with, hearing our invitation, knowing that we are inviting sorts of people to know and love the God who forgives, to know and love the God who heals, the God who redeems, the God who crowns, the God who satisfies our desires like no one else and nothing else can. We need to be that sort of people. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to get connected with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.